Welcome to the Dr. Pat Show. Talk radio to thrive by. Powerful, inspiring, and coming to you live, bringing you stories of people like you and me, busting through and living life full out. Get ready to dare to wonder what your life would be like if you knew you could not fail. Welcome to a fabulous segment. I want to take a moment and, you know, many of us have parents, grandparents that, you know, were part of what we know as World War II. World War II. And as my uncle would say to me, you had to be there to appreciate it. And yet we live in a pop culture where we've seen so many movies, so many documentaries on what it was like. But what is it about those men and women that stood their ground for us in that war? What was it about them? How much do you actually know about the people that have been, how should I say it, honored and revered for the things they've done Today, Dr. Brian Mark Rigg is joining me here today, and we are going to talk about the last World War II Medal of Honor recipient. What do you think this individual may have done? Well, you know, the Medal of Honor is the highest uh, medal uh, for valor that uh, our nation bestows on a, a serviceman or woman for going beyond the call of duty. And to kind of put it into context, just in World War II, you know, we had 16.3 million people who served our nation during World War II, and only around 480 uh, got the Medal of Honor. Mm. And in the Marine Corps, which we'll be talking about, because that's where yeah. Woody, uh, Woody Williams served, you had 669,100 uh, Marines during World War II, and only 82 got the Medal of Honor. And so, you know, it is a very elite group. These people... Um, have to do extraordinary actions in order to get it. And once they get it, in American lore, in American society, American military, they get pushed up to Mount Olympus of military gods and heroes in our nation. I mean, if these people walk into a room, even if they have the rank of, like, sergeant, like Woody did at the end of World War II, generals are supposed to stand up and salute. And they salute the medal. The medal takes on a life of its own, and it's symbolic of the sacrifice of whatever campaign those people were a part of, and they become spokesmen for the men and women who can no longer speak, who gave the ultimate sacrifice. So this medal has deep, deep uh, significance for what it represents as far as freedom is not free, uh, that um, you know these men and women, they went into harm's way and they helped their comrades and they did extraordinary things that pushed the campaign that they were most, you know, most likely in to victory. And so there's a lot of things that kind of like surround the Medal of Honor that people need to be aware of and why it is such a powerful medal when somebody gets that tied around their neck. Yeah, I want to just tell everybody, um, joining me here today, Dr. Brian Mark Rigg, and by the way, the author of more than one book, the author of more than one conversation, you know, you'll be able to take a look at the body of his work. We'll let you know how to do that, how to find him. You know, everything from looking at Hitler's Jewish soldiers, uh, additional books on World War II and the Holocaust, and then his latest book, which I totally relate to, being in this group of people, conquering learning disabilities at, at, at any age. So clearly, 
for you, a life path that you have laid out is a life path of really looking at how these folks who otherwise may go unnoticed in the world, but then show up. You know, they show up in a way and we step back from it and we think about this. But, you know, we're talking about flamethrower, right? Iwo Jima Medal of Honor recipient, U.S. Marine, Woody Williams. And, and the note that, I don't know, a controversial award. How so? How so controversial? Well, you know, this is one thing I um, uh, really did a deep dive into is like, how do we make our heroes? How do we give this medal? And, uh, you know, Commandant of the Marine Corps, who's my mentor, and he also endorsed the work, a 29th Commandant of the Marine Corps, Al Gray, said, Brian, you've educated me more about how medals of honor were given during World War II and just given, period, than any, any other person I've, I've uh, read. And so I, I take I, I'm, I'm, that's a badge of honor that I do uh, wear. So mm-hmm. now getting to your question, why is this a controversial award for, for Woody? Well, I did a deep dive into 20 case studies from Iwo Jima. 27 men got the Medal of Honor from Iwo Jima. Woody was one of them. Out of, out of 80,000 men mm-hmm. who rotated on and off that island in combat, just kind of put it in perspective. Wow. And so as I was looking into Woody's medal, you know, this is a very involved process that when your company commander or your platoon commander puts together the package and pushes it up the chain of command, it has to go through several levels before it ever gets to the president of the United States. So Woody's package was thrown together in many respects in a very messy way, uh, but it made it through the regiment level, you know, 3,000 men. It made it to the division level, 20,000 men. It made it to the corps level. Um, which is three divisions, about 60,000, 70,000 men. And then when it reached the Fleet Marine Corps level, Roy S. Geiger, famous Marine Corps general, he and his board realized that what was written up in the sample citation and in the first endorsement letter was not supported by the affidavit. And he and his board then conferred with none other than uh, Pacific Commander, Fleet Admiral Chester Nimitz and his board and asked them, what they thought about this, and they agreed with Geiger that this package was all messed up, and they were not going to push it forward. They did not sign off on Woody Williams' Medal of Honor package, but they found out in this time period that they might have a chance to figure out why there were so many discrepancies, Mm. because Woody's, uh, Woody's platoon commander had survived the war, but he had not been asked for an affidavit, but he was, he had trained with Woody for six months. His name was Lieutenant Howard Chambers. He had commanded the action that Woody was a part of that got him, you know, eventually the Medal of Honor. So they wrote him directly and said, hey, can you help us out with giving an affidavit to clarify the problems here? And he refused to support Woody. He was asked again, and he still refused to support Woody. And uh, uh, 31st Commandant of the Marine Corps, Charles Krulak, who looked over this with me because I was very uh, disturbed by it, if Mm -hmm. you will, he said, this is messed up when, uh, when somebody's platoon leader refuses to uh, endorse them. There's something really wrong here. So Geiger was right, right to stop the process. Well, during this time that they're trying to figure out whether Woody deserves the medal or not, and they put the brakes on it, President Truman is putting a lot of pressure on Secretary of the Navy, James Forrestal, to get him a live Medal of Honor recipient to award medals to in a Rose Garden ceremony on the 5th of October, 1945. A good fill 
ceremony, a political, bipartisan, and presidents love this. But he didn't want to give medals to weeping mothers or weeping widows. He wanted to give it to alive, strong, strapping young men. And so he was putting pressure on Forrestal. Forrestal put pressure on the Marine Corps and Chester Nimitz. And they said, under no circumstances, he pushed this forward. Well, eventually, they actually pulled it away from the chain of command. Woody's medal never got the endorsement of the Commandant of the Marine Corps at the time, General Vandergrift, or, or the Fleet Marine Force Commander, General Geiger, or the Pacific Commander, Fleet Admiral Chester Nimitz. And it was fast-tracked uh, in the halls of Washington, and it was politically pushed through. That's why it is such a controversial medal, mm-hmm. because in many respects, under normal circumstances, it appears it should have never happened. Yeah. And you know what I love about this story? First of all, thank you for shedding some light on this. By the way, thank you for shedding some light across the board on, on this and the mission, because I was really struck by, I think, one of the first paragraphs in your book. And I will apologize if I if, if I actually get the uh, the language wrong. But I think in your dedication, something like to my sons, Ian, Justin, and even your daughter, I think was Sophia, you know, may they never have to face another Iwo Jima. However, uh, you know, like if they do, may they be the first to volunteer for such a mission. That is the way my relatives felt as well. Now, many of us know about Iwo Jima. We know about it. How do I know about it? We lost, we lost an uncle. We lost an uncle there. And why is it that we don't know enough about what this was about and how significant this was to the war going one way or the other, right? Do you agree that that this was very significant? Oh, absolutely. A very significant battle. Uh, People don't know an awful lot about it. We, We have to thank, in many respects, Clint Eastwood, yeah. <laughs> uh, for, for making the two movies he did in 2006, Letters from Iwo Jima and Flags of Our Fathers, for getting this story out there. But, you know, the one thing I was shocked, you know, when you ask, why do we not know about, about this more? Well, one, one side, our society, in many respects, do, does not support financially uh, historians. Right. You know, a lot of people who do write history books, they are professors and they have their duties in the classroom. And there's only so much time they can dedicate to uh, doing research. And a lot of times historians that are out there doing a lot of work, if you read their books, they're taking three or four books and making one out of them. They don't do a lot of historical research. When I I went to 18 different museums and archives in five different countries to write this book. I went to Japan. I went to uh, China. I went to Germany, America, and Guam to do this research and you know half of my 3,145 footnotes are from primary sources Mm. and what I was shocked by Pat is when I went into the National Archives in College Park Maryland outside of Washington DC or the National Archives in St. Louis for the personnel files quite often when they would bring me the original documents and sometimes the very high-ranking individuals who were you know dictating the the strategy of of the battle at Iwo Jima and were key personalities. A lot of times I was looking at documents that hadn't been looked at since World War II. How do I know this? Many of the documents were actually still in the envelopes, the manila envelopes, stapled shut with the seal on it, top secret from 1945. And wow. I had to go to the uh, main, main archivist to hopefully open, you know, open this up, and they did. They take the staples out and then let you look at the documents. 
So what, when you ask, why do people not know about this more? Well, first of all, a lot of the primary sources aren't looked at enough, and some of them haven't even been looked at. And we don't have a society that supports the culture of getting that history out. There is so much to be, uh, to be had uh, learning about this history. Now, saying that, we do have a lot of books out there, uh, nonetheless. And we do have a lot of people who are researching it, but we definitely need more. I, me finding out all this 70 years after the fact shows you that there's a lot to be done. But, you know, nonetheless, when you go to Barnes & Noble and so on, there's a lot of books on this, but there should be more. And there should be more uh, events like what happened yesterday when I was in Washington, D.C., to see Woody lying in honor in the rotunda of the yeah. Capitol, yeah. symbolic of all the sacrifices that men and women did during World War II, Getting that in the news, this is another way of getting that information out there. But, you know, I'm the first one in 70-plus years to sit down and actually write about a, an enlisted man, a true biography of an enlisted man from World War II. John Hoffman, who uh, was the former head of the Historical Division of the Marine Corps and famous author of Chesty, said that my work was the first good-faith effort to document an enlisted man from the Marine Corps from World War II. Now think about that. You had almost mm, you know, wow. 600,000 enlisted men in the Marine Corps during World War II. I'm the first one to really write a biography. So there's a, there's a need to do a lot more. You know? no, it kind of reminds I, me of, of, of E.B. White, uh, who <laughs> said, every morning I wake up and there's a side of me that wants to save the world and there's a side of me that wants to enjoy it. And it makes the uh, planning for the day difficult. So with me, you know, same thing with history. Every day I wake up, I was like, man, there's 30 or 40 books I could write that <laughs> need to be written. But I'm only one person, so I'll focus on one. <laughs> well, yeah, I love that because, you know, I faced that myself. You know, I faced the, the, that same question. You know, there's some days you wake up and I want to save the world, of course, with the network, you know, that we built here in our expansion. You want to do that. On the other hand, you just want to be of the world. And it really is interesting to have that go through. But look, you're on a mission with this book. I mean, one of the things Woody said to you is you have to be absolutely factual. And for people that are that are just tuning in, you know, I, I, let's take a moment. Um, I thought about this today and I thought, wow, what if we had done this interview a month ago? You know, might Woody have been here? What 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 if we have what if what if what if? But the thing I love about what you're doing and which is so important for us to remember, you know, we are battling the backlash of large groups of people that don't believe the Holocaust even existed, don't even believe it, and don't quite understand what was at risk at Iwo Jima. Let's talk about Woody for a minute, because this book is called, and let's just make sure everybody knows, this book is called Flamethrower, and uh, this is about uh, Iwo Jima Medal of Honor recipient, U.S. Marine, Woody Williams, and you are, Brian, you're the author of this. Let's take a minute, if we could. How can people get the book, but also how can they find out more about you? Because you've got a bunch of other great books out there. Well, well, well thank you, Pat. Well, you know, I have a website. Uh, it's my name, brianmarkrig.com. Brian, uh, spelled with a Y like a Yankee. Mark with a uh, K like a Kilo. And then Rig, uh, two Gs, R-I-G-G. So people can find about my work that way. Uh, they can also put my name into Amazon, and all my books are on Amazon. And Flamethrower is on Amazon. And free medium, Audible book, uh, Kindle, as well as hardback. And then there's a lot of YouTube videos out there if people want to 
see stuff on my work. That, mm-hmm. You know, there was a whole hour on Dateline about Hitler's Jewish soldiers. Yep. That is out there on uh, on YouTube if people want to find out more about me. So thank you for letting me do that plug. And that's how people can find out about my works and, and purchase my books if they uh, would like to. Well, I'm telling you, if people like you don't remind us of where we've been, we're not going to be able to recognize the signs of where we may go again. And this is really the this is the plight. Of, of history yeah. and that's history untold you know if if you know if you're not in on board what what world war ii was really about then you're not going to be able to recognize the signs of this very interesting almost silent world war three based on the way that war was started but i want to take a minute i want to talk about woody because he sure. did get the award and people are probably thinking what are they talking about, Iwo Jima? What did he do? Hello, the book is called Flamethrower. So I want to talk a little bit about this because we did lose a family member here. And, you know, it is one of the places of, of the war, I think, that is not talked about. We don't talk about what went on in the Pacific. You know, it's almost as if it was like a side dish or something. But, man, it was not, Right. Oh man, you know that's that's one thing that is. Uh, so I'll, I'll take the ten thousand foot view about yeah. you know this is not a sideshow, and then I'll get to your question about what did Woody do. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you know it's it's, it's sad. I you know I've been studying the World War II uh, and the Holocaust uh, since um, my undergraduate uh, days at Yale University when I was under James Crowley and Paul uh, Kennedy and uh, Henry Turner, and so I've been studying it since 1992, and. If you if you look at World War II, for every book published on the Pacific, you have like a hundred published on Nazi Germany, and uh, you know the fight against uh, the Third Reich and Hitler. And so, why the discrepancy? Well, uh, what, I think the simple reason is this: you had a lot of Jewish scholars after World War II who were alive and living in England and Australia, mm-hmm. America, and 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 many who survived and went to Israel, and they wanted to know why the Heck, that a nation of Beethoven and Bach and Victor Stein and Nietzsche, why were they capable of slaughtering six million Jews? And so there was a lot of research, especially with Raoul Hilberg up in Vermont, a World War II veteran, Jewish, uh, Jewish man, who wrote, you know, The Destruction of European Jewry and really got it out there in the 50s and 60s. And there was this intellectual community that really was diving into the documents and getting books published. Now, with Japan, Japan, a lot of people don't realize this, they slaughtered 30 million people, civilians, mostly yeah. Chinese. And they did it the old-fashioned way with bayonets and, and disease and, and bullets. And they were horrific. They raped everywhere. Rape of Nanking, some people know about, is endemic of everywhere they went. You have books written about rape of Hong Kong, rape of Beijing, and so on. So after the war, um, since most of, the Chinese, uh, most of the victims were Chinese, you would think China would have been the the perfect place to do most of the research and get this information out there. Well, unfortunately, you have a civil war going on in China. The nationalists lose by 1949. The communists take over. Mao Tse-Tung is slaughtering more of his own people than the Japanese ever did. And he's killing the intellectual people who would be the ones writing the history. So it's very hard to point the finger at Japan to get this information out there when you're doing it to your own people and you're killing the very people who could actually write it up? So that's one reason. Also, we're a European uh, nation in many respects, so we're kind of European-focused instead of Asian-focused, so there was less interest in it. 
But saying, this is why there's not a lot more information out there. Saying all that, the Pacific uh, War was much more complicated, yeah. much more difficult to do, and it deserves more attention because it was remarkable what we did of taking down Hirohito's regime that had taken over one-seventh of the circumference of the earth, and it was commanding over 600 million people. Hitler only commanded over 450 million people. So the, the Japanese regime was bigger, stronger in many respects, and it was spread over a lot more uh, area, and that our Navy was able to power project across the Pacific. And we started out with 350 ships. We ended with 8,800. It's like, don't mess with us. You tick us off, we're going to come at you. And so that was what th this amazing amphibious warfare and power projection that America was able to do on two fronts, in Europe and, and in the Pacific, was remarkable. And when you look at the naval and Marine Corps amphibious warfare capabilities in the Pacific, it is remarkable from a strategic point of view and a military point of view. Now getting to Woody being part of this puzzle. Um, Woody was a demolition expert. That means he knew how to blow up, uh, blow up stuff. He knew how to deal with um, uh, uh, all types of explosives. He knew how to deal with a flamethrower. And now, why was the flamethrower so important? Well, the Japanese in World War II, quite often, they were not on the islands that we attacked. They were in the islands. They were incredible moles or ants, if you will. And they yeah. would build these elaborate structures of tunnels and pillboxes. And on Iwo Jima, which we're talking about, it was an eight square mile with 11 miles of tunnels interconnected with 5,000 reinforced positions of caves and in pillboxes and bunkers. So Woody, being a flamethrower expert, quite often was utilized to attack these positions because you couldn't blow them up, you couldn't shoot them. The only way to attack these positions because they were in the ground was to go up to them and pour flame into them. Now the flamethrower, Woody was 160 pounds, five foot five. Mm -hmm. So have that in your mind when you realize that he carried 100 pounds of gear into battle. Two scuba tanks, if you will, full of fuel, of four and a half gallons of diesel and high octane aviation fuel uh, with a center tank of compressed nitrogen. And then he had a wand that was connected to that that could spray out a uh, flame uh, 20 yards in front of him and wide is about 20 yards as well. And it was 3,500 degree heat. It hit a body and within two or three seconds, all the moisture was out of the body and the body was on, on, on fire. One third of the 20,000 man garrison of uh, the Japanese had at Iwo Jima were incinerated. They were burned alive or suffocated because of the flames because that was the only way to kill them. Now, Woody, being a demolition expert, the second day he was on the island, his company commander came to him and said, hey, we're getting slaughtered here. We can't get through this line. It was right north of the first airfield. There's pillboxes and trenches all over the place. Do you think you could take some of them out with a flamethrower? Woody said he would try. And he went into battle with these 100 pounds of gear and he actually took out, you know, two, three, possibly four pillboxes, and he killed uh, at least, you know, probably eight, maybe upwards to a dozen Japanese, and they were able to punch through this line and go several hundred uh, yards uh, forward. And that's why he um, got the Medal of Honor, and that was an example of hundreds yeah. of guys doing the same stuff on Iwo Jima in order to take over this island to get the stepping stones, once again, with amphibious warfare and power projection, getting the stepping stones to get closer and closer to Japan.
Yeah, I, I'm so glad you talked about that in that way. And, you know, we have seen Woody, for those of you out there that have not, you know, we've seen Woody walk on football fields. We've seen Woody, you know, being recognized here. But what we don't know is the story that is being told right now in this book. And if you're somebody like me, you understand that you have, you know, you have dad born in Norway, right? My adopted father born in Norway, him and his brothers enlisted and they end up over in the Pacific and you could not get any of them to talk about it. The only, the only remnants we have of this is a, um, a sword, Japanese sword uh, and a Japanese gun, right? To this day, we yep. still have those. But to have a conversation about this and the loss of his brother, have a conversation of what went on in the Pacific, you could not, it, you couldn't get him to talk about it. And we learned early on, it was too painful and the loss of his brother. And so see, this is the part that we just don't remember. We don't remember the why. Now, Woody is a perfect yep. example of somebody that looked like the guy from Captain America before he became Captain America, right? You know, yeah. thin, oh, yeah, was... right? But this war, had it gone the other way, and this is what folks don't know. I mean, it may sound gruesome to those of you listening, but this is war. If you don't think that something similar isn't going on right now in the Ukraine, I just want you to say hello to yourself. Had we not have been able to take the edge you and I would probably be having a very different conversation, wouldn't we? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, we were isolationists at the time. We didn't want to get involved with the war. And in many respects, the world needs to thank Japan for their idiotic decision to attack us oh. at Pearl Harbor because there was no strategic follow-up plan. And it awoke, you know, the giant. And we started supplying, you know, Europe in, in droves. And then Hitler, a few days later after Pearl Harbor, declared war against us. And it may, turned us from an isolationist country to a country very determined to defeat these two um, fascist warmongers, Hirohito and Hitler. And had we not gotten involved, millions more people would have died. Europe would have come under the shadow of uh, Hitler, no doubt. Yeah. So uh, the, world, the world needs to thank us in many respects for, for bringing down these two regimes because they were not doing humanity any favors. You know, you and I could probably do a, a whole show. Who is it? Yamamoto. I think it was Yamamoto. I can't, I, I apologize if I get my names mixed up. But I remember, you know, studying this in depth about Pearl Harbor and the difference between where you and I are today and a decision that a fleet admiral made not to do a third wave on Pearl Har Harbor is the conundrum of the century for war people to look at. When, when or war strategists look at this, everybody scratches their heads. They don't quite understand why the Japanese in a perfect position didn't finish the job. And I'm very grateful they didn't because when we're thinking about this, you have to flip it over to some of the other strategies that Japan put in place for World War II. And Iwo Jima was one of them. You know, when you were describing Iwo Jima, I couldn't help but think of Vietnam. I just couldn't. Um, because I, if you know people that have gone to Vietnam, and we know what happened in Vietnam, Iwo Jima was the same setup. I mean, it's not like you were fighting somebody that was just landed on the beach. They were there, right? 
Oh yeah, yeah. Well, you know, and one one stat that people just find horrifying is that we lost seven thousand Marines in thirty uh, thirty six days of combat. We lost more American boys on Iwo Jima yeah. in just one month than we, we than we have lost servicemen and women yeah. in Afghanistan and Iraq in the last thirty years. Yeah, my uncle was one of them. I totally agree. Yep. Look, and his I wish name? John Bjorn Bjorn John Pete. Um, I wish I had more more time. Uh, these, these were people, so let me just talk about this. You talk about enlisting. These people were born like in another country and they're like, we have to fight for the United States. So we don't talk about that enough. But this is about Woody. And this is what I want to say. I hope you keep taking this word out. I hope you take the word out about all your books. I hope you remind people over and over and over again what a slippery slope this is. Because if we're not reminded of this, we can't even be aware when the insidious nature of this kind of atrocity starts creeping in. I want to thank you for today. I've got one question again for you. Um, please, please let folks know how they can get the book. I could talk to you for hours about this. Everything is in the book. I love that you put pictures in the book. Everything is here. You've laid this out so beautifully. You kept your promise to Woody to make it factual and yet make it very intriguing, interesting, and deep-heartedly sad. So thank you for all of that. How can we get a copy of the book? And again, how can we find out about you? And then my last question is, I'd love to know your personal message. Oh, well, thank you. Well, you know, they can get my book on Amazon, you know, a flamethrower. Here again, three mediums, Audible, uh, Kindle, and the hardback. Uh, my name, again, is Brian Mark Rigg. They can get uh, uh, more information about my books with my website. And my personal message, you know, especially with everything that we're talking about, is, like, get involved. Uh, freedom is not free. Democracy is nurtured by people stepping up and making this world a better place, whether that be coaching a little league team and teaching people about teamwork or whether it's getting on your school board or in retirement, maybe going and teaching. Just get involved. Be proactive. Be an actor. Don't be a, a you know critical uh, you know uh, analyst about things. You see the problem, go get uh, go get involved, and get your hands dirty, and that's what the generation of World War II uh, has taught me. Getting involved and making a difference makes this country stronger, and that's what we should do. Dr. Bryan, thank you so much for this. Thank you so much for really bringing out this information. Thank you for honoring those that have served, and thank you for reminding us how close we do come on a daily basis to reliving something that none of us want to relive. Thank you so much for everything. Thank you, Pat, for having me. Have a great day. You too. Hey, everybody, let's take a short break. Welcome to the Becoming You show with me, your host, Leah Rowling. Do you believe you are capable of choosing your future? Sometimes it takes just one person to believe in you or you to believe in yourself. If you find yourself continuing to say, someday I will take better care of myself, only to continue living the same day over and over and over again, then you, my friend, are in the right place. I am your biggest cheerleader, inspiring you to become you on purpose and with intention. Are you ready to create a life you love? I'm excited to share with you some big ideas that you can use today to inspire, impact, and influence your life and everyone in it. The Becoming You show starts now.
I wanted to share something just real quickly with you. I just got back from an amazing conference in Washington, D.C. I had the honor of speaking at the IAOCI World Congress. It's an international congress for dentists. And it was amazing to meet so many people from all over the world. And interestingly enough, regardless of their degrees and certifications and successes, they too are human. They have human brains that doubt themselves that create unnecessary struggle and emotional overwhelm. They get stuck. They sabotage themselves. They live in scarcity. I'm telling you, we cannot run outrun this human thing. So we better get good at understanding it. I often wonder why people don't want to learn about themselves. I have some theories, of course. First, I believe it's because we are too busy in our roles, in our identities, that we've lost sight of who we are. And self-discovery seems like a waste of time or a foreign concept, nothing that we have time for today. Maybe when the kids graduate, maybe when I retire, maybe when we find ourselves looking for proof and ways that that when will reveal itself. The second reason I think that we don't take the time to really learn about ourselves is because we can't unknow it. Once we know it, we can't unknow it. A decade ago or so, I was um, at an integrated holistic medicine conference in California. And I learned all sorts of really cool things about food and toxins and metaphysics and the emotional language of our body and clearing effects and some really cool, amazing things. And once I learned those things, I can't now unknow them. I can choose to disregard them. I can choose to uh, dismiss them. I can choose not to adhere to them, but I can't unknow. This new knowing requires for most of us change. And we don't like change, especially when it requires a change for ourselves. In talking at the workshop, it became really apparent that dentists know a lot about dentistry, but not about themselves. They know very little about the human that resides as a dentist. I feel that is so true for so many of us. We all know the skill of our profession better than we know how it feels in skin. We know the art of motherhood and fatherhood, but do we know who we are in absence of this hood? We know our roles as daughters and sons and sisters and brothers and wives and husbands, but who are we in our role of self? What does that even look like? Friends, we are not our roles. We are not our identities. We are not our profession. And when we lose ourselves in them, we lose ourselves. 
It is why so many of us struggle when we become empty nesters, because we don't know who we are if we're not being a mom. So many struggle when they retire because they don't know who they are if they're not their profession. So many struggle when they quit their career to stay home with their children and they can't identify as anything other than just a mom. When for so long they were an employee, they were a boss, they were a team leader. So who would you be if you weren't being a mom? Who would you be if you weren't being a dentist or a doctor or an attorney or a hairstylist or a lawyer or a teacher or whatever it is that you do for your job? Who would you be? You would be you. And I'm going to take an interesting twist on our specific role as a mom today and show you how to rediscover yourself in it. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. So let's talk about how we might be able to wear the same mom hats to support our best being. So the first role, first hat that I feel like I wear as a mom is a taxi driver, shuttling to and from activities sporting practices, games and school and play dates is no joke. Like getting three boys in baseball in and out of the car should be an Olympic sport. But where am I driving me? Where am I headed? Do I know? Do I have an end in mind? What do I want for my life? Or have I just been too interested in the life of my kids to want anything for mine. Chef, seriously, I swear my boys are always eating. It feels like every time I look, they are in the pantry. Finding a time that we can all sit down and eat like a family are few and far between. What to eat seems to be the question, regardless of how well we planned the weekend before. Coordinating food around their schedules, their likes, and their preferences seems obvious, but is it obvious for you? Do you coordinate food around your schedule according to your likes and your preferences, or do you eat what they eat? Because that is what they like. Do you enjoy your food, or do you serve it behind the island so that you can be available? to get them refills and seconds. <laughs> and don't get me wrong. You, you, you will find me behind the island many a nights. But it's interesting, right? Shouldn't I like what I'm eating? Shouldn't I be allowed to sit and eat and enjoy my food without the frenzy of the anticipation? I'm a personal shopper. That's what us moms are. Of course. Along with shopping for the groceries, someone has to make sure that they have the right sports gear, you know, baseball to football to basketball, the right seasonal gear. We have all the seasons in Iowa. So winter coats, hats, gloves to jackets, shorts, T-shirts, plenty of socks because they inevitably go missing and 
and that all of the sh- kids' shoes fit. Not to mention the random, very random, like two times a year random, where they actually have to wear something other than a shirt and sweatpants. Packages flood my doorstep for prepper try-on and inevitable return. How can the Nikes run so different from shoe to shoe? But regardless, the level of organization required to ensure that they have everything for everything is nothing short of miraculous. But do we make sure we have what we need? Now, this might look different. It might look like organizing outings with friends. It might look like planning trips or experiences or massages, spa time. Maybe just a new pair of runners for you. It might look like 10 minutes of peace and quiet outside of the shower and the bathroom. What does it look like for you to ensure that you have what you need? Wardrobe assistant is another role that us moms play so well. And luckily for me, dressing boys, pretty easy. They're not too picky unless they were hoping for that one sweatshirt or that one shirt. And you get that shout out, mom, you know the one, as if I'm a mind reader. Do you know where that one shirt is? And for some reason, it didn't get cleaned in between the commuting from practice to practice and making dinner and doing baths and making sure that homework is done. Sometimes finding clothes that aren't too tight, that aren't too itchy, seems impossible. Or when you ask, what's the matter with that one? They're like, oh, I don't wear that. (laughs) To which I say quietly to myself, I'm quite sure that was in the laundry last week. But sometimes they need help dressing for certain important occasions. And there is nothing that you won't do to make sure that occasion is successful. Do you hold the same standard for yourself? How do you dress you? What care do you take in getting ready? Again, there's no judgment here, just an awareness of how we're showing up for ourselves. There are plenty of days, trust me, where my hair is up in a hot mess and I'm wearing the same pair of black pants from the days before without even looking in the mirror. Probably not my best idea. We are also nurse. With boys, there is always something to worry about, a bruise to examine, a bug bite to question, a scrape to kiss. The list is endless. I am the administrator of the medicine, the one on hold for the on-call nurse, the late night fever checker, all wrapped into one. How do you nurse yourself back to life? Do you allow yourself to be sick or do you push through because you can't afford to be sick? You don't have time to be sick. Consider we would never tell our kiddos, you know what? You don't have time to be sick today. Get up and figure it out. Yet how often do we tell ourselves that? Just told myself that last week. We are counselor. All these new emotions, experiences, and fears and adventures 
call for a good listening ear to sort through all of the feelings. Before becoming a parent, I didn't realize that I could ruin someone's life by asking them to put on a winter coat. It is my goal to be the type of mom in which my boys can come to me and talk to me about everything. I want to listen intently to their worries and their wins. My hope is that home is always their safe landing place. And if I make them feel safe with the small stuff, my hope is that they will share with me the big stuff. But are you a safe landing place for you? The place where you can go to sort through all of your emotions, your experiences, and your fears. Are you listening to your worries? Are you celebrating your triumphs? Or are you just talking about how you could have done it better, differently, and ruminating on all the losses? We are also referee. Sibling battles are real. And amongst boys, they can be brutal. I fearlessly dive in and I separate everyone. We listen to both sides and help them work through the struggles to come to some sort of compromise, at least most times. Some days it feels like this is all we accomplish. We deserve whistles. But are you being the referee between your ego and your soul? You know the ego. It yells things like, it will never work out for you. You can't do this. Some people are just more lucky than I am. Who do you think you are for trying that? No way, not for you, the ego says. I don't know how, the ego says, just to make sure that you stay confused by it so that you stay in doubt and delay and indecision. Your ego says, I will never fill in the blank. Your ego says, he should be different. She should be different. Your soul says that it will work out and that you can do this and that you are lucky and to never stop trying. You are alive, my friend. You are lucky. Are you calling some fouls and some interference on your ego? Are you protecting your soul from yourself? We are also secretaries, whether it's extracurricular activities or just making sure everyone is staying on schedule with their well visits, their eye visits, their dental exams, their Cairo adjustments, their pitching, their batting lessons, getting them to the movies and the mall and picking them up from friends and dropping them off. Are you staying on schedule with your visits? Are you planning things for your physical well-being, your emotional well-being? We're also housekeepers. <laughs> the daunting pile of laundry that never seems to go away. Yep, <laughs> we do that. The floors that need scrubbing after the milk is spilled. We got it covered. All those little tasks to keep a house clean are for the most part a mom's job. But your body is your home. How is the upkeep? Are you moving your body? Are you fueling it with nourishment? Are you getting your sleep? Are you taking your supplements? Are you prioritizing and nurturing your relationships? How is the upkeep in your heart, in your head? Is it cluttered or is it light? 
We're also photographers. A mom is a daily documenter. We take a lot of pictures of our kids and our lives, and we want to soak it all in and remember every little detail. With these photographs, we can look back and relive all the moments. Every year, our family, we create a Shutterfly book of memories, and no doubt, it is their favorite book in the house. But, but just, just to add, it, it doesn't count as their reading minutes. But how are you documenting your life, your goals, your ambitions? Are you journaling your wants, your worries, what you're grateful for? Are you looking at your vision board? Do you make one? Where are your memories? Are you as excited to document your day to day? If not, why could you be? What would that take? What would that require for you to get just as excited about living your life as you are in documenting your children's? We are cheerleaders. Yes, we are. No one else will love your kiddos like you do. No one else will build them up and stand by their side for everything. A mom's job is to challenge them to be the best that they can be. We give them the encouragement to take risks with the security to know that they have a safe place to land if they fail. How are you cheering you on? Do you feel safe to fail? Do you feel encouraged to try new things? To be courageous and bold? To put yourself out there without permission or people pleasing? Are you encouraging and enthusiastic? Do you meet yourself with pom-poms and that of girls? I want you to. Hairstylists, ah, the haircuts, the tangles, the lice, ugh. There should be a special award for moms that have to take care of that. And I will take some bragging rights. I had to do it three times in a month. Now, maybe you do make sure that you have your hair appointments scheduled out. But what does that day-to-day hairstyling look like? And I'm not suggesting it should look like anything. I'm not suggesting that you should be spending the time to get ready, the whole hair and makeup and wardrobe thing, but do you want to? What would make you feel better, more confident, more put together? If the answer is yes, maybe you prioritize just a few minutes to do just that in the morning. We are professional party planners. We are. Baptisms, communions, birthdays, all the unique things that make each holiday special do not happen by themselves. Behind each and every great party is a mom that has racked her brain and hours on Pinterest for the best ideas. A mom who has coordinated the food and has made sure the decorations were hung up just so. A mom who lost countless hours of sleep to make that day special. Are you making your day special? Are you taking time to truly celebrate you? Your birthday, Mother's Day. What are you doing to ensure that you are celebrated? I love my birthday. And for those of you that know me, know that I celebrate the entire month. I love my birthday month. I love having all of my favorite people there to celebrate. Celebration of my family and friends with my favorite food. It truly is one of my favorite days of the year. We're professional organizers. 
organizing the wardrobe is just one teeny tiny aspect of the day-to-day -day organizational skills that we possess. Everything in our house needs a place. All the projects need to be filed into what is kept and what is stored in the recycling bin. Trinkets and toys need to be stored away so that our house doesn't look like it's filled with the toys when we all know that it is. But beyond the physical things that we organize, we keep a detailed list of so many important things. We know who needs what each day. We know whether it's day one or six. When is library day? Is it lunch, hot, cold? Is it banned? Who acts silly and runs around the house naked when they're overly tired? Who needs quiet time? We can hear the signs of an all-out war miles away and have already planned out the rescue. Are you organizing you, your life, your priorities, what you like to do? If I looked at a planner, would I be able to tell how you take care of you, how you love you, how you matter, what you need each day? Do you know when you need a break, when you need to check in with yourself? Are you applying the same standard of care for yourself? Most people would say not even close. Could you today take just one of the many jobs we do as moms or caretakers and see if you can't apply the same care and commitment to yourself? Being a mom is not easy, but generally nothing worthwhile is. Being you is no different. It takes some attention. It takes some intention. But there is no greater purpose. You are the purpose. Thanks for being with me today, everyone. If you like this episode, would you do me a huge favor? Would you share it with some of maybe your favorite moms? Maybe you celebrate them in honor of all of these roles they play and hope that they take one of these roles and apply with the care and the commitment that they give to their children to themselves. We all need our youest you to be expressed and to be given out into the world. Our purpose has social impact. And it's important that we take the time to cultivate who it is that we are and share our gifts freely in the world. And we can't do that if we are stuck in the roles of mom as dentist, as hairstylist, as attorney. I want you to be the greatest version of you. So please share this with three of your very, your very favorite moms in the world. And if you want to take what you learn on this podcast and 10x level your learning, I would invite you to join our Becoming group. It is an online community of amazing, fabulous women just like you. You can join us at www.leahrolling.com forward slash becoming. This community needs you. 
You have been listening to the Becoming You Show with me, your host, Leah Rowling, where I share big ideas to inspire, impact, and influence your life. Tune in every Friday at 11 Central on TransformationTalkRadio.com for your morning cup of coffee, the hug you never want to end, and that inspirational message that you felt was written just for you. Each show is inspiring you to become you with purpose and intention. For more information or to connect with me, visit www.LeahRowling.com.